Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. About a month ago, I brought to your attention Crypt TV on YouTube. I've also discovered that the Sci-Fi Channel had also been airing a horror show. Despite my love for Sci-Fi's The Expanse, based on the book series of the same name, and The Magicians, based on the book series of the same name, I had managed to miss that they had been airing a horror show, Channel Zero. The creepypasta stories that bubble up from the dark corners of the Internet get scooped up by the staff writers who turn a screenplay, and voila, we have... Channel Zero. The first season only has six episodes, and I'm only one in, and I think it's pretty solid so far. You may want to give it a spin if you have the chance. On the topic of short-format video horror, I came across another video that I'll strongly urge you take a look at. It'll cost you ten minutes of your time, and I hope that you find it as thought-provoking as I did. The video is Guillermo Carbonell's La Peste, which in English is The Plague. In the show notes, I've linked directly to the Vimeo page, but I've also linked to an io9 page that has a few more details about it and a surprisingly thought-provoking and, for internet comment section, civil discourse about the video. I've admitted my love for the zombie genre, but I, like you, have tired of it a bit. How many times can you return to the same well? Every now and then, something comes my way that I think does something new and inventive. This is one of them. I don't think it's enough to breathe new life into zombies, but this is a different kind of zombie. You've heard me recently speak of the highest virtues of science fiction, exploring the strange possibilities of what we are doing with our existence. 
I contrast it with our own genre, and sometimes the genre speaks to what we do with the cessation of our existence. Watch the plague and consider it as a commentary on how we, as a society, handle our elderly, and you'll discover a new dimension of horror. On a lighter note, well, actually, no, not really. Let's hear some fiction. Our story for the night comes to us from Philip Fricasse, an author and screenwriter living in Los Angeles. His recently released collection of stories, Behold the Void, was published by Journal Stone in March of 2017. He has a novella, Fragile Dreams, that was released in November 2016, and a new novella, Saculina, released in May of 2017, both from Journal Stone. He is published in several current and upcoming anthologies, and his stories are featured in magazines such as Strange Eons, Lovecraft Ezine, Ravenwood Quarterly, and Dark Discoveries. Philip currently works full-time in the film industry on his writing. His screenplay credits include Girl Missing, distributed by Mar Vista Entertainment for Lifetime Television, and Santa Paws 2, The Santa Pups, distributed by Disney Home Entertainment. He has several projects in development. Listen with me to Philip Fricasse's Atukas. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I am a worm and not a man. Psalm 22, verse 6, attributed to Jesus. 1. Alfie drove the jeep hard over the rough, rock-strewn road that led to the find. He was up high now, altitude of at least 10,000 feet, the wind brittle cold. He kept the windows down, enjoying it, relishing the clean air, even if it turned his knuckles to blue bolts as they held the steering wheel. The jeep lifted high on the passenger side, came down to the thud, then dipped it left into a gully, rocking Alfie so hard his feet momentarily left the pedals. He jerked back into the seat, laughed, and gave it more gas. James had said, not of this earth, and James, an Oxford man through and through, wasn't one for hyperbole or metaphor. Quite literal, his geologist friend. He'd also said the sample showed dramatic aging that held no relation to its geological position or depth. Put the two together and you had a nice, fat meteorite, a juicy bit of space right here on planet Utah, 
only a few hours' drive for Alfie from his home-based lab near the university. He praised the heavens the thing wasn't found a bit further north, across the border, or James might have been calling Jim Robinson at Wyoming instead. Even so, Alfie figured the find was technically on federal land, part of Ashley National Park, but he wasn't about to bring that up with James. Hell no, the space rock was his, and by God he meant to have it. The jeep bounced over a ridge, and Alfie saw the tents in the distance, navy green pimples dotted along a butte a half mile ahead, the thin dirt road twisting like a brown snake right for it. About five thousand years, I'd say, more or less, just a baby, really. Alfie nodded, stared at the blackened chunk of rock, lying in the middle of the miniature crater the geologists had dug around it. Its surface was jagged, almost crystallized, and gave off a black, chalky residue when touched. It looked, to Alfie anyway, rather unstable, more like shale than stone. James's crew, all students, stood absently around the dig, some of them likely hoping to be included in whatever this discovery ended up being, the rest simply cold and homesick. Alfie smirked, remembering his own years as a student, having to take whatever shit the professor or project head doled out. Hate to break it to you fellas, but your claim on this meteorite went out the window when your boss brought my sorry ass up this mountain, he thought, itching to be gone but not wanting to seem overly anxious lest James rethink the importance of the discovery. Pre-Egyptian, Alfie mused as if bored, each word punctuated by clouds of breath in the frigid air. Any similarities? James jammed his thin white hands into the front pockets of his vest to warm them, stuck out his lower lip, a posture he took often and one that Alfie always thought would go well with a pipe or a stuffed hawk in the background, decorating the mahogany of whatever Oxford study room James most often postured within. Nothing on record, not anything like this at least. She's a rare bird. The composition is strange for a meteorite. As you can see, it's flaking. Oxidation must have been slowly cooking this thing for the last few millennia, killing it from the inside out. But, like I said, the material is completely alien. I may not know much about this little guy, but I know it wasn't born on planet Earth. I've already taken my samples, pictures, measured, weighed, and cataloged. It's not a crondite, I can tell you. Some rare acrondite I've never come across. And since you're the only meteoric within a thousand miles, I figured I'd hand you the baton. I have my hands full with the shit I actually came out here to do. Alfie nodded, only half listening, and not entirely caring about James's considerations on the matter, since the man knew as much about meteorology as Alfie knew, or cared, about the archaeologic bone-digging mission the Brits were on about. Besides, he was entranced by the object before him. It consumed every ounce of his attention. Iron prominent, I assume? he asked, knowing the answer but wanting to build some goodwill by asking the idiot his opinion. James looked at him strangely, his voice lowering, as if nervous of being overheard. That's the thing, Alfie. You'd think it'd be packed with ferrous, yeah? But it's not. So far, our tests have shown no iron at all. Alfie gave him a hard look. You've got to be mistaken. James scoffed, pulled the front of his khaki archaeologist vest down neatly. <laughs> I don't think so. If there's one thing I know, it's how to test the chemical makeup of rock. Or, in this case, meteorite. Ergo, I'm curious what the university will come up with. Alfie nodded. Well, I'd better load up and get it over there. People are wanting to see this baby, he said, knowing damn well he had no plans to take the find anywhere but his own home lab. He didn't want, or need, the university's premature meddling in a case like this one. If he was ever going to raise his personal profile within the scientific community, he knew it had to be outside the purview of his employer. 
He stepped down into the belly of the crater the team had dug out, his eyes dancing over the rock in anticipation. You ready to go home, he thought, kneeling down beside the meteorite, about the size and shape of two bowling balls side by side, joined at the corpulent hip. He rubbed the surface with his fingertips, gave a little yelp, and flinched, jerked his hand away. He could have sworn he felt a pulse, like he had touched an electrical wire thrumming with current, not enough to shock, but enough to make him want his fingers back, thanks very much. He stared at the black smudges on his fingertips, rubbed them together, the dust staining his skin. His hands were trembling. "'Don't tell me it shocked you, mate. I'll have to call the star,' James said without humor. "'No, it's fine,' Alfie said, the strangeness of the meteorite only building his excitement to study it more closely. "'You're the composition expert, so tell me. What's it made of, James?' "'Beats me,' James said irritably, beckoning for two nearby assistants to come over and help with load-in. "'What the hell do you think I called you for?' Two. Alfie dollied the large, latched titanium case through the front double doors of his slate-gray home, the 201 freeway roaring above and behind him as he weaved the hand truck through the entry and into the carpeted living room, rumbled over the linoleum kitchen floor, and slowly lowered the hand truck's wheels down the basement stairs to his lab, step by step, careful not to jostle the crate's docile contents, despite knowing the case's interior padding held the meteorite firmly in place. He set the case in the middle of the lab floor, turned on all the lights, and ran back up the stairs, nearly bursting with anticipation. He was sure this would be the big one that finally raised his profile to national, if not global, heights. He imagined the grants pouring in, the book offers, and, inevitably, the substantial raise in salary from the university. That's if they could even keep him, of course. He had, after all, always enjoyed the idea of an Ivy League professorship, and there was always MIT. Why not dream big? Outside, Alfie closed and locked up the jeep, then ran back inside, where he hurriedly closed and locked the front doors. As he flipped the deadbolt, he gave one last look outside through the door's small window. His front yard, a large half-acre weed-riddled thing, surrounded by a low-metal fence, and the giant adjacent vacant dirt lot that served as his only neighbor, were both as empty and quiet as ever. Chastising himself for his paranoia, he turned and strode deliberately for the stairs. Midway to the stairs, he changed his mind and went through the living room to the glass double doors leading to the rear of the house. He checked the backyard, found it clear, then locked the sliding doors, pulled the brown woolen curtains closed, robbing the room of light, leaving him in musty darkness. He diligently went through the rest of the house, pulled every curtain, closed every blind. On his way to the basement, he activated the door alarm, the one he usually only set when traveling. Just in case. Alfie had converted the basement a few years back, having realized he could get more work done, without prying eyes constantly peering greedily over his shoulder, in the privacy of his own home. He'd installed a reinforced metal door with a deadbolt lock, put up fluorescent lights throughout, drywalled over the exposed beams, and painted it all a stark lab white. He'd built in an industrial washing station at one end of the open room, an end-to-end -end stainless steel countertop along the adjacent wall, mounted cabinetry above, and purchased two mortician tables that he'd wheeled together to form a workstation in the center. It was upon the mortician tables thoroughly steel-brushed and sanitized once purchased, that he placed the meteorite for inspection. 
Alfie checked the two digital cameras that were mounted to the walls, one above the counter, one on the opposite wall, and made sure they were recording to a massive terabyte cloud drive the university provided. Satisfied everything was in order, he donned goggles and surgical gloves, then approached the meteorite. He shifted the rock a bit so it rested easily on the table, without any wobble, and prepared for testing. Using his lightest rock hammer, he chipped a fragment off the side of the dusty black rock, then another, and another, enough to get started. He put the respective samples in their own enclosed petri dishes, labeled them one, two, and three. He walked them to the counter where his equipment was set up, including a microscope on loan from the university, on loan from the university, a series of acids and solvents, brushes and fine tools and other refined equipment, some of which was his, most of which he had borrowed and not yet returned. One more, I think, he said, wanting to test a particular oxygen generator mixture on a clean sample. He turned, hammer in hand, back toward the meteorite and froze. A thick, wriggling, maggot-like creature, white as a sunken corpse, slick with moisture and peppered with dusty black residue, protruded from a crack in the rock, the exact spot where he had chipped away his last sample. At first he assumed the thing must have been somehow attached to the exterior of the rock, something he had missed while packing and pulling it from the crate. Something James missed while taking his measurements and weights and pictures, he thought. Fat chance. He stepped closer to the meteorite, spun the table slightly on its smooth wheels in order to get a better view of the entire surface without having to touch it. He fully expected to see the worm sticking to the side of the meteorite, but it wasn't. It was obviously, quite unbelievably, pushing its way outward from inside the rock. Impossible, Alfie said aloud, his mind already racing for explanations, scientific rationale of how the worm might have been trapped inside the meteorite, possibly trapped under years of sedimentation, perhaps as other materials had slowly built themselves up around the surface, somehow trapping alive this creature or its initial heat melting surrounding matter to its core. Something may have burrowed itself into the rock, laid eggs... Alfie knew how ridiculous it all was, even as he thought it. Not, however, as ridiculous as the alternative. That the worm had been living inside the rock for, what, 5,000 years? That it had been inside while the thing hurled through space for who knew how long? Impossible. Ludicrous. Nothing could survive, especially something that appeared to be in its larva state, just recently hatched. Unless. Unless there were eggs inside the meteorite that were dormant somehow suspended, and then perhaps, just perhaps, when supplied with a certain life-giving element, namely oxygen, a trigger. Alfie bent over, his face less than a foot from where the larva slowly, persistently pushed itself through a small, almost invisible, crack in the shell. A syrupy, clear residue leaked down the black surface of the rock as the larva continued to thrust its way into the world. Into our world, Alfie thought, and the ramifications of this discovery suddenly exploded in his mind. His back straightened. Behind the goggles, his eyes widened. His body went a tingly sort of numb all over. He realized, with stunned wonderment, exactly what may have just happened inside the basement of his home. His home. In his laboratory. Alien life, he thought. Dumbly, drunkenly, he smiled, almost laughing at the sheer ridiculousness of the potential reality. I've discovered alien life, 
he said out loud, testing the words, the idea. Maybe I have. He looked at the worm once more. Nothing else made sense. He knew it in his heart, in his scientific mind. There was no other possibility. Like a stretched piece of elastic, his mind snapped into place, his body rediscovered its nerve endings, and the whole world glowed with brilliant possibilities. Holy shit! He screamed and spun in a circle, dropped the hammer to the floor, ripped off his goggles, and howled at the ceiling. Woohoo! Alien life, baby! He laughed loudly, hysterically, then caught himself, realized he was drooling, breathing heavy, his heart pounding. He wiped his mouth, stared at the worm still extracting itself, his face hurting from grinning too hard. He rubbed at his stubbly cheeks. Get a grip, Alfie, he said, realizing there was a mile of testing and analysis before even considering such a wild claim. He would have to be sure, unequivocally, undeniably, positively sure. If he realized his finding and was wrong, he would be the laughingstock of the scientific community. He would be done, finished. So yes, he must be absolutely sure. Oh yeah, he thought. But what if? I'll be famous, he said, addressing the visitor, who didn't seem to care or notice Alfie's state of pure exultation. I'd be the most famous person in the world, he said, slowly and surely, tasting each syllable as it rolled off his tongue. Okay, okay, he said, trying to calm himself, to slow the rush of blood to his head, the adrenaline-fueled pumping of his heart, and focus as best he could. First things first, he said, and took a deep breath. My little friend, I'm going to need you to put on your game face. Alfie ran a hand through his hair, cleared his throat, and stepped up to one of the mounted cameras. Assured by the red light, he looked directly into the lens and began to speak. <clears throat> My name is Alfred James Monroe. It is August 21st, 2016. I have recently returned from a sample-gathering trip near Athena National Forest, just outside the federal perimeter, where I discovered what I immediately deduced to be a meteorite. Subsequently, I brought the meteorite back to my lab for further study, and, in order to analyze samples of the rock, I proceeded to chip off a sample of the exterior shell. Having done this, in no great extreme, I produced what appeared to be a small fissure leading to a hollow in the interior of the meteorite. Stunning, I realize. He paused for effect. Even more stunning, and still hard to believe, is what's inside. He turned slowly, hand laid out like a game show model revealing the grand prize, letting the tension build for future generations, and pointed at the white fat larva. As the camera recorded the moment for posterity, the larva finished its expulsive journey through the rock shell and fell with an inglorious plop to the lab table surface. A trail of clear goo, thin as a spiderweb thread, stretched between it and the hole it had burrowed through. Shit! Alfie yelled, immediately forgetting the camera and lunging for one of the petri dishes and a glass stirring rod on the counter behind him. Grabbing the items, he spun back to the steel table on which the meteorite sat and gently, oh so gently, rolled the larva into the petri dish where it lay, relatively docile, slowly squirming and bending this way and that. Hello, Alfie said, mesmerized, holding the clear dish and its lone occupant, so close to his face, he could almost smell its dank alien excretion. My name's Alfie. What's yours? He said, and laughed at his own stupidity. I'm sorry? What was that? He said, putting the thing in the dish close to his ear. It's hard to hear you because you're so very small. Wait, let me guess, he said, setting the dish down on the work table, anxious to get a closer look. Take me to your leader, am I right? 
The larva squirmed like a living, slick white thumb as Alfie put it under the microscope, beyond curious to know the detailed makeup of the alien creature. He would need to extract tissue, study its composition. He'd have to send it off for analysis, but how to do it without letting the proverbial cat out of the bag? He shook his head. A problem for another time, he thought, and stuck his eye to the microscope's eyepiece, his hand absently reaching for a notepad and pencil. Rub-a-dub-dub, there's a grub in my tub, he mumbled, and began making notes. He was so immersed in studying the alien creature that Alfie did not see the emergence of a second larva head protruding from the same slick crack of the meteorite, pushing its way stubbornly and with great purpose toward the new world. 3. In the days that followed, Alfie was forced to leave the house twice for supplies and equipment. Otherwise, he did not sleep or shower and hardly ate. He had called his supervising professor at the university and given a cock-and-bull story about his mother, long deceased, being gravely ill, saying that he'd be leaving town a few days, maybe a week, maybe longer. The professor had given his regards and assured Alfie to take all the time necessary, which was just peachy for Alfie because since that first larva had poked its head out from the meteorite, he had forgotten about anything other than studying the strange creatures, going through the identification process, and seeking madly to positively identify them as truly, undeniably extraterrestrial in origin. Now, as he stood and stretched after a short nap on the cold steel mortician's table, adjacent to the one that held the meteorite, Alfie thought the lab looked more and more like an incubation chamber. There were six rectangular aquariums lined along the full length of the counter, each holding about a dozen of the alien larvae. He had filled each aquarium halfway with thick, dense black soil, roots, and other vegetation, hoping the creatures would be able to feed off the earthen offerings. After those first two larvae had wriggled free of the meteorite, many more followed and followed and followed. Alfie decided to cut to the chase, and, as delicately as he could, split the rock with a hammer and chisel. Inside he had found two nests, each containing a giant's fist of squiggling, slimy larvae, feeding themselves on the carcasses of who Alfie assumed had been their parents, for lack of a better label. Once he had moved each of the larvae to the incubation aquariums, he was able to better study the remaining husks of the host creatures. His initial thought, followed quickly by a stomach-dipping surge of disappointment, was that they weren't alien creatures at all. They were beetles. Large beetles, to be sure, and most closely resembling the scarabadiae, or more commonly known, scarab beetle. The carapaces were a foot in length, wide as a hand and heavy as a brick, Alfie was no entomologist, but he knew enough about the science of insects to know the hosts had likely given birth only very recently, possibly upon the discovery by James and his team just a week or so prior. Something triggered the birthing process, he thought again, knowing it impossible but too intrigued to let it go. Like they were waiting, dormant in some sort of hibernation. Alfie allowed the scenario to work its way around his head as he studied the creatures, whose biology was so similar but also so very different, very alien, from Earth's own insects. They were much denser, for one. The gravity on the world they came from must be vastly different from Earth's, and when he looked at the meteorite, he began to think of it less as a rock and more of a spaceship of sorts, despite it being composed of mineral versus machine. Primitive and yet somehow superior to man's technology, it had landed 5,000 years ago, struck the earth hard enough to be deeply buried, hidden all that time, 
what remained of it anyway, what hadn't burnt to ash upon entry through Earth's atmosphere, and there the inhabitants had lain for thousands of years, awaiting discovery, awaiting release. He knew it was true. There are no coincidences in science. The beings had lain stagnant, been unearthed, and when something released inside the chambers, a ticking clock had begun. The four creatures, a male and female, for lack of a better understanding, two in each chamber, had procreated, laid eggs, given birth to the masses of larvae, and then been slowly consumed by them, nourishing the offspring with their own flesh until the time for release came a release Alfie had single-handedly manufactured. By studying the remains of the host creatures, Alfie figured the larvae could have likely sustained themselves another six months, perhaps as long as a year. Keeping one of the hosts for his own research, he dissected the other three, dropped them into each of the aquariums, unsure of whether the nutrients were essential to the successful growth of the larvae, in addition to the decomposing vegetation and soil he himself had provided. They were so similar to grubs, down to the shining, extended buckeye head and protracted limbs, that he assumed they could consume similar nutrients, and so far his theory proved correct. The grubs seemed to be thriving, not one had died, and the pieces of the adult hosts were being devoured as greedily as the roots and vegetation he'd provided. He knew it would be months before any of them developed into pupa, and possibly years before they reached the full imago stage, but he would be patient and would make sure his research was thorough and held to the highest scientific standard. So when he revealed his finding to the world, he would have already achieved the status of leading, if not exclusive, expert for the first alien species ever discovered. Books, guest appearances on every major talk show and news program, speaking appearances... He'd have to hire a publicist, a manager, an agent, perhaps even a movie deal. Why not? His story would be one told throughout the ages. His name would be in every textbook, on the lips of every scientist, throughout what remained of the history of mankind. Sitting on a hard stool at the long counter, Alfie scratched at his unruly beard, watched the aliens thriving in the aquariums, and thought hazily of all the possibilities the future held. All he ever wanted was to be remembered to be immortal. Alfie worked through the day and into the next, not eating, not sleeping, driven by thoughts of fame, by the excitement of discovering new life from another world. Finally, his body yielded to its limitations, his vision grew fuzzy, and his hand shook when he tried to write. Eventually, he collapsed across the work table, midway through writing a note on the alien's feeding habits. He slept, but not deeply. There were whispers in his mind, Whispers that crawled through his subconscious, like a million microscopic lice. They were words, but not any that he could understand. The words were constant, consistent in tone, a steady flow of instruction, of knowledge, being delivered to him in a rhythmic fashion, driven directly into his brain. Whispers, so many whispers, too many, thousands of voices, all speaking at once, all telling him something new. Images pulsed through his mind, sun-baked vistas, hazy pyramids in the distance, an expanse of outer space, colorful galaxies flowing like cotton candy and black ether, a broken army of strange, stalk-like savages swarming to escape a ravaging enemy attacking from above and beneath, bizarre cities raised to the ground, planets reshaped, civilizations destroyed by an army with countless numbers, the whispers and images quickened faster and faster, driving into his head, erupting like a supernova in his mind's eye. 
The frantic, overwhelming, invading thoughts were hurting. His sleeping body began to shake. Blood spat from his nose as he groaned and coughed. In the half-dream state, if it was a dream at all, his head felt like it was swelling, his brain bursting apart, bubbling with the acid of alien thoughts, visions of unknown worlds no human mind could comprehend. He winced and barked broken denials as if in a nightmare, fighting the whispers, the voices now, wanting them out of his head. Stop, he screamed in his mind. Please, he begged, afraid. Please get out. It hurts. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. God damn you, I said, stop. With a jerk, he woke, raised his head from the cold surface of the laboratory counter on which he'd been dozing with a gasp. His temples pounded viciously, a migraine behind his eyes, so sharp and painful that the room wouldn't come into focus. His stomach flipped and gurgled as if filled with acid, its meager contents wanting quite badly to rush up and out. He lurched drunkenly off the stool. His legs immediately buckled and he fell hard, cracked his forehead on the concrete. A stack of notebooks and papers filled with notes, sketches, and data collapsed on top of him, scattered across the floor. He moaned, rubbed the butt of one hand into an eye that felt like it might very well explode. I need a drink, he thought, and then more rationally, and some fucking food. Alfie wasn't sure the last time he'd eaten anything of real substance. Didn't think he'd eaten anything at all for days, other than the dregs of a giant bag of greasy chips, whatever beer had remained in his fridge, and a couple granola bars he'd dug out of a dusty backpack he'd found tossed into a corner, remains of a former expedition. He slowly carefully got to his feet, one hand resting on the lip of the counter, and let the room sway a moment. Then, after a few deep breaths, steady. He wiped a line of drool dangling from his lip, scratched at the week's growth of beard, growing like unruly moss just below. Jesus, he thought, I'm a mess. I've got to... Then he heard it. He froze, listening, holding his breath. He didn't move, didn't make a sound, heard only the beating of his heart throbbing in his ears, the sealed room devoid of all other noise, except for, and there it was, scratching. He looked at the aquarium's eyes wild. While he'd slept, most of the larvae had transformed, entered the pupa stage. He was shocked. What should have taken weeks or months even had happened in mere days. But even so, Regardless of the speed with which they were developing, they certainly shouldn't be moving, and they most certainly shouldn't be digging. Alfie moved closer to one of the aquariums, saw that the pupae had, miraculously, burrowed deep into the six or so inches of earth, and a few of them were now pushed against the glass, as if trying to continue their path to go deeper, as was their nature in the adult stage, or at least the nature of their earth sister, the beetle, in order to build a wider, broader nest." and now pupae were trying to dig through the damned glass. Their undeveloped legs protruded like jagged, broken matchsticks from their thick, jelly-like bodies, claws tenaciously flicking blindly against the aquarium sides. To Alfie's relief, the glass was holding. For now, at least. The pupae themselves were unlike any he'd ever seen or studied. Each was easily the size of a baby's fist, and had a deep golden hue pulsing beneath their slick, mucilaginous surface. Other than the size, however, they didn't seem to be all that irregular from the earth pupa of a beetle. What was strange was the strength and vitality of the aliens. A normal beetle, an earthen beetle, in the pupa stage would be completely stagnant.
essentially developing within a chrysalis, awaiting their transformation to full imago before shedding the pupa layer and emerging. But these pupae were active workers, diggers. The pupae appeared as nothing more than a fat lump of worm with a shining bronze head, complete with new antennae. While the tarsus and claws were emerged, working frantically, the femurs were still hidden beneath the wet golden shell. As he looked more closely at the undercarriage of one particularly tenacious creature, Alfie could actually see thin scratched lines in the glass where the pupa's claws had grooved the interior surface, as if their claws were made from rock or diamonds. The sound of the hard, scratching limbs on glass filled the lab. Combined with his headache and the nasty dream he'd had, Alfie was suddenly overwhelmed. His heart raced, his breath came in gulps, black spots crowded the corners of his vision. He felt suddenly panicked, perhaps even a little frightened. He staggered for the stairs, wanting suddenly free of the lab, of the strange creatures growing there, of that incessant sound. Once upstairs, he went to the kitchen, all but lunged for the refrigerator. He was out of beer, but there was a half-filled bottle of orange juice, a relatively pruned apple, and an unopened packet of cheese slices. He ripped the top off the orange juice and gulped it down, nearly vanquishing the remains in one breath. It wasn't until he lowered it and breathed in deeply that the sharp tang of spoil hit his taste buds. His stomach lurched and gurgled loudly enough to reverberate in the small kitchen. He picked up the apple, prepared to eat it, but thought he may need it for the bugs. So he stuffed it into his pocket and instead unwrapped three or four slices of American cheese and stuffed them into his mouth, the processed dairy turning to mush as he chomped and swallowed it in a dry lump. It sank into his stomach like a ball of grease, slowly digesting in the rancid juice and percolating stomach acid. He dropped the plastic juice jug to the linoleum, where it clanked, fell over, and sloshed out part of its remains onto the floor. He lurched to the bathroom, hoping he wouldn't have to throw it all up, but needing to pee and brush his teeth. His mouth was dry, pasty, and sour. He used the toilet and turned on the faucet to scrub his hands. When he looked into the medicine cabinet's mirror and saw himself, he nearly gasped in shock. There was a brief moment where he, quite literally, did not recognize his own face. His hair was mussed and plastered oddly in places, clumped wildly in others. Facial hair covered his mouth and cheeks and chin in a hazardous tangle. Patches of crust and particles of meals long past clung to the beard like the last survivors of a sinking ship. His eyes were bloodshot and worse. One eyeball had ruptured a vessel, flooding the sclero with red, giving the right side of his face a monstrous look. Damn it, he said, and splashed water over his face, his eyes, his beard and hair, sloppily grooming himself to a relatively respectable level. Gotta get it together, man, he told the dripping reflection, and vowed to have a shower and a proper meal before the day was through. And what day was it anyway, he thought, then shuddered. He'd lost track of time so completely he had no idea. He hadn't followed up with the professor, had left his cell phone, the battery certainly dead, somewhere in the lab. He wondered if his associates, his friends, had grown suspicious of his extended absence without communication. Surely by now, curiosity would have grown to concern, fictitious dying mother or no. Have they come to my door? Have they tried? Have they called the police? He doubted the last. He only had a few friends, and most of them traveled on their own projects, had their own busy schedules. Just how long had I been down there? The thought of not knowing panicked him slightly, as did his grisly, wild appearance. 
Screw it, he said, and decided a break was in order. A shower, a shave, and a trip out of the house to get himself a solid cooked meal. The bugs will be here when I get back, he thought, and smiled weakly at his reflection, feeling good, feeling confident about taking control once more. He was just about to take off his stinking, sweat-soaked T-shirt, eager to get into the hot spray of a shower, when he heard the muffled sounds of breaking glass. It came from the lab. Alfie tore down the stairs and pushed through the reinforced door into the lab space beyond. He slammed it behind him, eyes scanning the aquariums, the tables, the floor. He saw that two of the aquariums had shattered. The other four seemed to be holding, but he could still hear that constant, determined scratching. He ran to the aquariums that had broken, saw that heaps of dirt and most of the pupae had spilled out over the table and onto the floor. At first he went to pick them up, thinking to put the spilled ones into the other aquariums, but... As he looked more closely, he noticed that the pupae seemed quite alive and, almost disturbingly so, active. The dozen or so that had dropped to the floor were writhing on the concrete, but not without purpose. They were digging, and by the looks of it, making progress. Alfie could see the frenzied pupae tearing at the concrete floor, deep scratches already evident where two or more seemed to be working, somewhat impossibly, Alfie thought, in unison. Mesmerized and more than a little curious, Alfie stepped over to the other aquariums, careful not to accidentally step on the pupae, although a part of him wondered if it was to keep from smashing them or from hurting himself. Those claws must be razor sharp. He picked up the first aquarium, the glass sides vibrating with the efforts of the pupae within, scratching for freedom. He tilted it over, let the contents pour down onto the floor. Dirt, roots, and golden, wriggling blobs of the pupae all fell into a giant pile, joining the rest. They, too, without hesitation, started attacking the floor with their claws, the tibia on each creature a blur of frenetic motion. Alfie turned over the remaining aquariums, one by one, creating a great pile of dirt and alien bugs on the lab floor. He pushed the mortician tables to the side of the room, clearing as much space as he could for the bugs to work and for his own observation. He stacked the empty aquariums against a wall, then back to the doorway, shower and food forgotten, and slid down to the floor, his back against the door, amazed by the power and tenacity of these creatures that had not even yet reached the imago stage of their lives. He pulled the shriveled apple from his pocket, thought about taking a bite, and then tossed it overhand into the pile of dirt. It was immediately devoured. 4. The first adult spawned three days later. The Meket Aten, as Alfie had come to refer to the scarab-like creatures for reasons he didn't wholly understand, had burrowed through the basement floor, the foundation, and into the earth below the house. Alfie hadn't gone down into the tunneled earth to thoroughly investigate, primarily because he feared the tenacity of the workers. He didn't want his limbs perceived as an obstruction to be sawed through the way they had torn through concrete, rock, and earth— but he had crawled to the edge of the massive crater in his floor, easily big enough to drive a car through, and flashed an industrial flashlight down into the depths the Meket Aten had created. At first, there didn't seem to be a bottom, but then he noticed the deep tunnel that they dug curved northward, so that he saw only the tunnel's bend, and, not having a powerful enough light to illuminate it, assumed a bottomless void. They had gone on to dig multiple tunnels, extending outward from Alfie's property, each wide enough for a human being to walk through, if slightly hunched over, and who knew how long. 
He assumed, based on his early study of insect life, that they had built a nest somewhere down there, deep in the belly of the earth. It was from one of these tunnels he saw the first adult emerge. It was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. The large creature caught the beam of his light as it climbed up and out into the main sunken area just below the home's foundation. Alfie had been shining the flashlight downward, trying to count the number of tunnels the Meket Aten had created, when the alien scrambled into view. It was a massive thing, long as a small dog, perhaps, and wide as a baby sea tortoise. Its antennae were long and black, tensing and twitching in the depths. The shell was a solid bright gold, shiny and clean as chrome, with three bright green luminescent dots set neatly across, about midway down its shell. The creature had looked up at Alfie as if sensing him, and immediately skittered up the sloping dirt path toward him as if anxious to say hello to a new friend. Alfie panicked, suddenly very afraid of what the fully adult creature might do to a human, given the strength and cutting ability of the pupa spawn. He wanted to stand, to run, to regroup. He tried to get his legs under him, but the room swooned and he fell back on his ass with a grunt. Too weak, he thought in a panic. His head was pounding to raise the dead. His eye throbbed like it would burst from its socket. He groaned and nearly sobbed at the thought that he'd let himself get this bad, ignore his own needs, the needs of his body. He turned his head, looked back toward the hole. He watched with wide bloodshot eyes, in fascination and horror, as the creature emerged, first the long antennae, then the jet-black head, its mouth wet and dripping, eyes shining like burning black suns. It had slick jaws and a monstrous beak. The beak was shaped like jagged teeth. Alfie let out a terrified squawk and shuffled on his ass, back and away from the hole, kicking wildly as he pushed to the far wall, his eyes never leaving the emerging creature. The adult heaved itself, easily, nimbly, onto the concrete floor and skittered straight toward Alfie, its sharp legs clicking like tiny pistol shots as it crossed the floor. Terrified, knowing the thing wanted nothing but his insides for a meal, he looked around desperately. The handle of the rock hammer jutted from over the edge of the mortician table he had pushed aside, the one still bearing the vessel these beings had inhabited on their trip through space. Adrenaline and fear fueled his movements, and he reached up and snatched the hammer, fingertips brushing the black leather of the handle just as the creature scrambled onto his foot. With a pathetic cry, he swung the sharp edge of the hammer down at the thing, putting all his remaining strength and terror behind the blow, hoping to spear it and keep himself alive a little longer. The hammer hit the golden shell and clanged off without even scratching the surface. The creature didn't, in fact, seem to notice Alfie's effort. The hammer clanked to the ground as the alien climbed onto his leg, its front legs already gripping one knee like a steel clamp. Alfie tried to kick at it, in vain, he supposed, and the thing, the Meket Aten, only clambered higher, its hard, sharp claws poking into Alfie's thighs and hips like spears. In trying to pull away from the thing, Alfie only managed to slide his body off the wall, his torso flopping to the ground as the creature moved higher, undaunted, before settling heavily on his stomach and heaving chest. Its onyx eyes stared emptily at Alfie's own, its antennae stroking his face with soft, wiping slashes. Alfie couldn't believe the weight of the thing. Despite being no bigger than a shoebox, the creature felt like a cinder block weighing down on him. Alfie was about to do something, to scream, to fight, when the creature spoke to him, its audible voice an inhuman series of squeaks and clicks. You are dying, it said. Alfie couldn't believe it. 
The thing was communicating with him, speaking in indecipherable sounds, but Alfie could understand it. The thing speaks English, he thought, almost laughing aloud at the idea. Not English, Kepri, it said, reading his thoughts, its jaws working as it hissed and clicked, tendrils of warm liquid sliding from its mouth, wetting Alfie's shirt. But you can understand, because we will it so. You are dying, Kepri. You must not die. It is almost time now. The creature stared at Alfie another moment, its glassy black eyes studying him, then turned nimbly and scrambled away, off his body, across the floor, disappearing over the edge of the hole, down into the tunnels, back toward the nest. Alfie watched it go, his body going limp with relief as it vanished from sight, at which time he promptly and most thoroughly passed out. When he finally came to, groggy and drained, Alfie wasn't sure how much time had passed. He laid face down on the cool surface of the basement floor, too weak to stand, too tired to do anything but watch the coming and going of the now very large quantity of adult Mekitatan that clambered in and out of the hole in his basement floor. Unlike the first adult, who had made a point to visit him straight away, the rest of the scrambling creatures seemed to be completely ignoring Alfie's presence. So he just laid there and gawked at the amazing alien beings and their hectic building pace. The lab itself was unrecognizable. They had layered the walls and counters with dirt and dung, smashed through the reinforced door, and created the head of an earthen tunnel, leading upward towards his home. The fluorescent light still shone, and some counter edges still protruded through the packed earth, but Alfie felt as if he'd been taken from his home and dropped into a faraway cave on a planet not his own. As the Mekitatan worked, Alfie passed in and out of unconsciousness, wondered absently if his wasted body would be used for food. During a particularly cognizant moment, he noticed a massive adult emerge from the hole twice the size of his previous visitor. My God, they're getting bigger, he thought, and walked toward him. It was long and wide as a wheelbarrow, and Alfie didn't want to even think how heavy it must be. He prayed this one didn't clamber onto his chest, confident it would crush his ribs like toothpicks. As it got closer... Alfie noticed the giant creature held a large membrane, sagging from its jaws like a veined water balloon, a rubbery-looking sack that wiggled and writhed, a womb with a hundred feisty babies eager to get out. Alfie's eyes fell closed once more, his exhaustion complete. He watched through a blurred haze as the sack hit the floor, saw the bundle of fresh larvae spill out. The giant creature angled its face down to look directly into Alfie's own its mouth hissing and clicking, its breath surprisingly clean and earthy, like the inside of a cave or the bottom of a new grave. There is good news, Alfie heard, translating the language in his mind somehow. We have begun mating, Kepri, it said, all squeals and wet clicks. The time is near, and you must eat. Alfie tried to respond, to question, but he could only moan and drool into the dirt-smattered concrete beneath his head. His eyes rolled up into his head, something deep in his brain popped, and the last thing Alfie was conscious of happening was the shocking sensation of a strong, stick-like object entering his mouth and pulling his jaw open. His tongue lolled, rubbed against the coarse hairs of the creature's limb. Something moist and wiggling was shoved into his mouth. The taste was bitter, and the mushy, twisting object filled his cheeks, juices running down his throat. He tried to bite, to spit it out, but instead his mouth was gently, firmly closed, and it took hardly any effort at all to swallow the thing down. The giant creature's claw opened his mouth once more, and another larva was pushed inside. 
This time Alfie swallowed greedily, then opened his mouth for more. With the patience of a mother caring for her young, the creature continued the feeding. 5. Alfie slept and dreamed of great things, a boundless golden army that could attack by air, by ground, from beneath the ground, millions strong, a raging storm cloud of creatures, nearly indestructible, flying sun-fueled warriors the size of tanks, swarms of them. He was shown visions of destroyed cities, of nations, of every people, the extinction of entire civilizations. In a state of semi-consciousness that lasted an indefinable period of time, Alfie felt the bustling legs of the creatures, so many creatures, upon him, ripping and stripping away his clothing, tugging at his hair, his face, feeding him, whispering to him, teaching him. Their voices filled his mind, spilled their history and the history of mankind into his own memories, and he took it all in. He listened. His mind continued to be bombarded with images, and it was as if he were reliving his own memories. Alfie could see vast, sand-filled plains, vistas of wild green forest, vegetative planets with landscapes beyond his ability to fathom, burning landscapes where creatures of fire were laid waste, mountainous vistas, cities of blue metal populated by giant men. There are others, they said. In his own world, thousands of years ago, a leader was chosen by Earth's Mechatatan, the army of Aten, the sun god. That leader, united civilization, demanded their worship, their compliance. It was a new world order, one of peace, of intelligence, one god for all humankind, an end to wars, to tyranny, to terror. He saw a species of giant Mechatatan working side by side with Earthmen, building impossible structures, beacons to their brethren's own home planet, billions of light years away, where the true Aten resided, the creator of suns, the creator of life, the one God. These Meket Aten, these travelers, had built civilizations before, but man and earth had failed, and now the time had come to try again, begin the rebirth, start the world over, hope mankind could survive and build, carry the light of the supreme being that humans called Aten, Itzamna, Yahweh, Amun, Shiva, Nugua, too many to count, too many to name. As the thoughts persisted, some distant part of Alfie could feel the larvae bursting apart inside him, the fluids and alien bacteria from the creatures rushing into his bloodstream, expanding his heart, reshaping his delicate, intricate brain. His body was lifted, placed by sharp but gentle claws onto the back of a giant creature. He could sense more than see being carried down, down into the depths toward the nest. His world lifted up and away, as he went lower and lower, his fingers dragging in soft dirt, as darkness encompassed him completely. He was set down inside a chamber as vast as Solomon's palace, an entryway to the massive honeycomb of caverns and tunnels already reaching beyond the city, spiraling downward and outward, new catacombs being even now created and filled, reaching even further. His eyes prickled, sharp needling pain shooting through them. He opened them, blinking, and was surprised he could see clearly down in the depths. A duotone yellow showed every crevice of the cavernous fulcrum. The vast walls crawled with countless golden shells. He was no longer fed. 
He was so full now his body could digest no more. He defecated, his body emptying itself, and the creatures methodically combined it with their own waste, spread out in great piles throughout the cavern. The Mechat-Aten covered Alfie with the waste, then rolled his bloated body, his stomach a giant flexed womb of nutrients pumping through his system into a great pile of dung. They continued to roll him into a massive ball of dirt and shit, inside which he laid, dormant, at the center of a chrysalis, awaiting transformation. In the quiet, warm, dark, Alfie curled into himself like an unborn child, could hear his heart beating faster, faster. Visions and information was translated into his mind like a hurricane, expanding his brain, physically reshaping his skull into an oblong shape. The parietal plate breaking and pushing backward, stretching skin, reforming into an antenna with which he could communicate with the one God, as well as the other Mechidaten, to receive and provide information, relay the will of the Great One, lead them. As the transformation slowly continued, he felt, numbly, with awareness but no pain, his limbs crack, reshape, lengthen, then quickly heal, stronger than before, stronger than bone, than steel. A thick secretion spilled from his pores, hardened around him, over him. His back broadened, shoulders separated and extended, muscle ripped apart and regrew, sinew sprouting like weeds inside as his skin became shell. His new mind started to finalize its ultimate form, and the part of him still human wondered if he would fly, if he would swarm with his brothers, his children, and watch the destruction of what mankind had built from high above. Caressed by the cool mist of the clouds, the warmth of the one god spread across his impenetrable carapace like a guiding hand, the hand of a father. They will call him Atukas, and when he emerged, the new world would begin. His creatures, having created this new man, will scream like locusts, See him! See the Great One uniting the earth! And he will rise, burning like the golden sun. The End That was Philip Fricasse's Atukas, as read by Pete Lutz. Pete Lutz hails from Illinois, but departed at an early age to seek his fortune. Twenty years later, he retired from the U.S. Navy, having been completely misinformed as to where all the fortunes were. Since that time, he has done a number of interesting things, many which should never be mentioned in a public forum, but one of those interesting things was the creation of an audio drama podcast series called Pulp Puri Theater, an anthology series with adaptations from classic pulp fiction and original stories from both Pete and guest playwrights. The podcast can be found on both iTunes and Stitcher. Pete lives in South Texas with his wife and son. He's a civil servant in his day job with a part-time radio gig, but his nights and early mornings are spent in great bursts of audio creativity. Lastly, for the benefit of Miss Marcia Morgenstern, he is not the Pete Lutz who stole the jack-o'-lantern off of his grandma's front porch in Big Legs, Idaho in 1949. Please stop calling him about that. Thank you, Pete. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. 
Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.